Monday, this past Monday, I was supposed to and didn't do a, a couple of sessions on, on preaching at Tyndale. And Monday rolled around and I just had no voice, couldn't do it. And I had prepared uh, eight points on what matters most to me in Sunday preaching. And it dawned on me that I could say all these things at Tyndale because I'm speaking to an audience, maybe with the exception of a couple students and some faculty who attend the church here, but I could say just about anything I wanted and you wouldn't know the difference. I could make stuff up about how I preach and what's important to me. So I did these eight points. Two of them relate to the sermon this morning. And the first thing I said, let me just read it to you. This is the outline that I would have uh, given the, the, the students there. I said, here's a brief and probably flawed checklist that has formed my heart after 34 years of preaching three different messages each Sunday in the same church. Point number one was, for the most part, I've preached through entire books of the Bible verse by verse. Then I said, I find this kind of preaching easier to admire than to do. Over the years, I've been humbled by how easy it is for me to teach what I thought people wanted to hear. I love to be liked. Following the ideas presented in the word-by-word flow of the text forced me to rein in my own biases and my own interests. And then I said this, and it relates to this morning. I said, there's another benefit of such preaching that isn't as obvious. Preaching through entire biblical texts helped both me and the church learn to receive spiritual help from texts that didn't immediately appear practical or beneficial. You don't need my help to read Psalm 23 and feel blessed. But you know as well as I, when you're reading through the whole Bible, you come through passages in your reading, and by the time you're done, you think, what in the world is that about, and what does it have to do with me? We have a text like that this morning. Another point that I made, point four was, I've always tried to teach people to draw ideas out of the specific words in the text. I know that seems obvious, but many preachers don't labor enough at this. So I underline this word, that word. What does that word have to do with this sentence? So anyway, I think that's true of my preaching, isn't it? That we try and go through books of the Bible, and that I underline specific words and things in a text to help draw truth and meaning from it, however successfully. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is part eight. And the title for this morning is Isaiah's Children and the Church's Hope. Isaiah's Children and the Church's Hope. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. 
Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Father God, in bringing many sons to glory, it's us, should make the founder of their salvation, that's the Christ, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. Speaking now, of course, of the incarnate body of God the Son, when he was born into this world. God does that. And we, we all have the same source. And that is why he, the Christ, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers. That word means brothers and sisters, by the way. Although the most common translation in that era would have been brothers, and that's why the ESV is a pretty literal text, and it will stick with that. Saying, and now you get these quotes from the Old Testament. I will tell of your name to my brothers. We read this verse this morning. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's from Psalm 22. When you read those words about... It's worded differently in different translations, so I might not get it right, but... The afflicted, in Psalm 22, the afflicted. You will not reject the cry of the afflicted. Who were you thinking of when you read the afflicted? Were you thinking of you and the problems and trials you face? Because what the psalmist was writing about, that's Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he hasn't rejected him. I'm going to come back to that. So here's the first quote from Psalm 22. It's in verse 12 of the text. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And now, we're in the book of Isaiah. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, this is still Isaiah. Behold, I and the children God has given me. It was two weeks ago now that we kind of briefly engaged verse 11. But the teaching really wrapped up At the end of verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so this is Father God's plan, the plan is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. How was he doing it? Well, he would make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. God the Son in his eternally existent state can't redeem anybody. He has to be born into this world of suffering, flesh and blood. Why? Because you can't pound nails through a spirit. Only a body can bleed and become the Lamb of God and take away the sin of the world. So God's plan was to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's really no good place to break up this second chapter of Hebrews. That's what makes it difficult. I mean, the whole chapter is is kind of an organic whole. Each sentence develops the one before it, and each sentence leads into the one following. Like, 
to, to split up verses like that isn't like pulling apart the segments of a tangerine. It's more like trying to it's more like trying to separate the water in your bathtub. It, it's, it's one, it's a whole. What we can say is, verse 10, it proclaims the son's mission in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. If you think back, in this series, mankind has been gloryless since the fall. And if you remember, the writer of Hebrews, he spent four verses in Psalm 8. We studied that together, mourning the loss of creation glory through human sin. And this is what the incarnation of the Son, the birth of Jesus, is all about. If, if gloryless, estranged sinners are going to recover the glory of being sons and daughters of God, it will only be through the redemptive work of God the Son. There is no other plan. So, so perhaps we could say the last half of that tenth verse, it provides the most workable bridge to the rest of this second chapter. If you have a Bible, look at it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, Father God, the creator, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay? If Jesus, God the Son, incarnate, if he is the road to recovered glory, a fair question is, how does he do it? There are lots of religions, right? Piles of them. There are lots of teachers, there are lots of prophets, as the first chapter of this letter stated. There's a world packed full of religions with, with their sacred books and with all sorts of devout followers. Why is Jesus the only one bringing sons and daughters to restore glory? Why not other religions? So the writer of Hebrews, he starts off by telling us that Jesus, that's his birth name, the incarnate Christ, Jesus. And Jesus alone, our text says, verse 10, he has been prepared and perfected for restoring glory in a way that no one else ever has been. So, any follower of Christ, anyone who sits in this room and claims Jesus is the only way, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord, it is incumbent on you to be able to tell the person who asks, why just Jesus? Why not other religious leaders? Why not other faiths? The reason Christ alone can bring sons and daughters to glory is said to be, in our text, that in him you have the creator, you have the God of glory coming all the way down, all the way down into our suffering, fractured, fallen humanity. That's what that last part of verse 10 is all about. Should make the founder of their salvation 
perfect, perfect for this assignment, through suffering. That's all the verse says. What this suffering was, the following verses are going to unfold. And so verse 11 begins the unveiling of just what kind of suffering Jesus experienced. And then, how how does that suffering reach me? Point number one. Only Jesus can sanctify the ungodly because only in his incarnation does a sanctifying God enter fully into fallen humanity. See, this is why, church, this is why Christianity does not work without the Trinity. Christianity does not work without the Trinity. Without the unique, without the uniqueness of God coming into human flesh. Everything that the writer of Hebrews is saying breaks down and falls apart. It won't work. So only Jesus can sanctify the ungodly because only in his incarnation does a sanctifying God enter fully into fallen humanity. That's in verse 11. Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies, that's Father God, those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. There's one important point to remember at this point. I've said it before, but you get all confused if you don't remember this. It's crucial to remember that everything that's being said about our Lord in the rest of this chapter is is, it's following the lead, really, of of chapter 2, verse 9. We see him, this is Jesus, the text will tell us that, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we're talking about, when you see Jesus, we're not talking about the pre-existent God the Son. When you see that word Jesus, we're talking about from the point of birth in Bethlehem on. The man, Christ Jesus. And verse 11 says that He who sanctifies, God, those who are sanctified, us, they all have one source. Through the incarnation, God is united, physically united with brothers and sisters like us. So Jesus is the Son's physical birth name. This is the one being described in verse 11. So this is how he... The sanctifier and we the sanctified are of one source or one stock because Jesus didn't just become like a man he became as much a human being as anyone in this room no less human than anyone in this room this is how he is prepared for the work this is how it all starts And so we are being asked to remember if we are to be sanctified, if we are ever to have lost glory restored, it will never come because I follow the teaching of some religious book. 
Everybody understand that? That little bracelet, what would Jesus do? If you could do, you can't, but if you could do everything Jesus did, that won't get you to heaven. That's the folly of that teaching. You're not getting to heaven because you kept a list of rules. You're getting to heaven because Jesus became all that you are and took your sin and all that you can't do with your own efforts. He took that to the cross and that sin was punished in him in a real human being. This is why you can't be saved but through Judaism. You can't be saved through Hinduism. You can't be saved through Islam. That doesn't mean there isn't good teaching in those things. What it means is we never are reached by teaching. What we need is someone to pay our debt from the human side. Representing me. Representing you. Point number two. Jesus' oneness with us removes shame and instills hope when it's fully considered and understood. Look at, look at uh, Hebrews 2, 11, 12, and 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus, Jesus is God becoming man. So we and he are, are of one stock now. That, that's the nature of the closeness, the relationship. Not God up here pronouncing forgiveness. God coming here and becoming like Don Horbin. Bearing my guilt. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Then he says, that is why he is not that word interests me. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. We'll get to these other quotes. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's Psalm 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's Isaiah. And again, behold the children God has given me. That's Isaiah. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you hear that sentence and it doesn't shock you, there's something you're missing. I would, I would say this. I count myself in this. To any in this room who knows himself or herself deeply, really deeply, it borders on being totally irrational that the Holy Son of God wouldn't feel ashamed identifying with us. You'd think he would. What internet sites have you looked at this week? What TV show or movie did you sit through knowing it really didn't fit with a Christian witness, but, well, everybody watches it. Who did you get angry at this week? 
What thoughts went on in your mind that if they were put up on a screen, you'd be a little bit embarrassed this morning? Were you materialistic this week? And yet, this, this blazingly, gloriously, undefiled in any single way, Redeemer is not ashamed of us. How is that possible? How is that possible? Pick the holiest saint on earth, place that saint beside the most insidiously cruel, twisted, perverted mongrel on the planet. And the distance between those two is microscopic compared to the distance between God the Son and we. Agreed? Have you ever been out with someone and just had the inward experience of secretly feeling embarrassed or ashamed of something they did in front of your friends? Have you ever had that experience? You have. You watch the news lately? Doesn't matter which perspective you hold. Have you watched a group of marauding protesters who, upon seeing person A associating with the likes of person B, they start shouting out in righteous indignation, shame, shame, shame. Have you seen it? The very idea that anyone would associate with someone targeted as unacceptable. It it irritates and it gets branded with shame from those who feel that kind of righteous indignation. And then this stunning text. We, who have the least right to feel ashamed of anybody else, have a perfectly holy redeemer who is not ashamed of us. God God forgive the church to whom that makes any sense at all. And as our writer ponders this, and now we get into the tricky part of the text, as our writer thinks about this, this this idea that God, through Christ, is so united with what he calls his family, his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed of them. He is one with them in all of their ugly sin, in all of their failure, in all of their rebellion. They don't don't get what they deserve. He he unites himself with them and is not ashamed to say, these, these mongrels are my family. And the writer now... He can't leave that alone. Okay, that's where we are. And I gotta quit yelling. What he does is he puts together three quotations. The first is from Psalm 22, the second and third are from the prophet Isaiah. And we're gonna try and see what is it that he's saying here. First is Psalm 22, 22. Let me put it up on the screen. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation. So you kind of think of a church when you see that, don't you? Tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. There's a reason Psalm 22 is very famous. It's forever famous for the simple reason that its opening verse forms the agonizing cry of Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the the striking thing about Jesus quoting this psalm, that's why it's called a messianic psalm. In other words, it was written pointing out things in David's life, but while David didn't know it, the Spirit of God was using it to reflect on the coming of Messiah and events in his life. And it has that dual perspective. The striking thing about Jesus quoting this psalm is it's the only time the only time in the whole New Testament where Jesus prays and doesn't call God Father. This is the only time. And the reason is that relationship is broken. And the reason it's broken is not because of anything Jesus has done. The reason it's broken is Jesus is actually bearing Don Horbin's sin and yours. And so he's not pretending when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's feeling is the weight, the weight of taking our place. It's not fake forgiveness. It it was the real weight of your sins and mine. Now, we're not doing this, but if you were to look at Psalm 22... Verses 16, 17, 18, they speak of the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet. They're in that psalm. They speak of the fact that none of his bones were broken. Remember, they did with the other two and not Jesus. That's in this messianic psalm. It's talked about. None of that, though, is quoted by the writer of Hebrews, which is strange because those are the things everybody talks about in Psalm 22 when it points to Jesus. Our writer doesn't refer to any of those things. None of them. He has a different goal in mind. So in Hebrews 12, 11, sorry, Hebrews 2, 11, our text, our writer has boasted that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And then in verse 12, that's when he quotes Psalm 22, 21. I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I sing your praise. Now, you still with me? Notice those two strange phrases. Of all the things to pick to quote, brothers and in the midst of the congregation. Those seem to be the two points that the writer of Hebrews wants underscored. So first, I will tell your name to my brothers. And the writer of Hebrews, he takes those words and he puts them in the mouth of Jesus. Those Old Testament words, and he puts them in the mouth of Jesus. It points to our Lord's solidarity 
with his redeemed. And if you want to see how literally this was fulfilled and how seriously Jesus took this, look at these words from Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. It's his family. And he replied to the man who told them, Who is my mother? Is Jesus losing his mind here? Who are my brothers? And then, just as this messianic psalm predicted, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, these people have no blood relationship to Jesus at all. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. We use, we use those terms so loosely. We don't, not as much. I grew up in a church where everybody was brother, brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. How many remember those days? It was really handy because when you forgot people's names, you could always just say, well, brother and sister, and it, it worked. But it became just kind of like like a religious phrase. I remember hearing years ago Jack Hayford talking about when the church on the way first just started to grow and new people would be coming into the church. And as it grew, because of its location, it's changed now a lot. But a lot of... Uh, big names, actors, actresses, would come to the church. You'd sit in the congregation. I remember the first couple of times Rini and I went, and it's a bit distracting when you see, you know, over here is Ephraim Zimless Jr., and over here is Pat Boone, and over here is, is and you just see them all over the place. And he said he was leaving the church one day, and a guy came in, a rough-looking guy, didn't smell very good, dirty, wanting something, but had said that just a few weeks before he had given his heart to Jesus in that church. And the guy's name was Bart. I never did hear what the last name was. And Jack was trying to get him out the door quick. And he said, do what you want with this. The Holy Spirit told him to go and say, Brother Bart, welcome. He went up and he shook his hand and said, well, Brother Bart, you're welcome here. And while he still had the guy's hand, the Holy Spirit spoke to Jack and said, he really is your brother. And he had that one of those aha moments where it was Brother Bart, Bart, Bart's my, oh, Bart's my, Bart's my brother. He's a brother. And that's what you have going on in this text. Jesus said, these are my brothers and sisters. And this isn't brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. This is my, I am, I am tied to these people. Okay, I've got to move on. The second important term is that one, congregation. It's in the last part of 22. I will tell, Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So, it, there's more. It's, it's starting to unpack a bit. In this messianic psalm, 
our Lord, as the writer of Hebrews, applies these words to Christ. Our Lord doesn't just label us brothers and sisters in some distant legal sense. Congregation, body, we are, we are pulled into a church, a community. It's a picture of parts joined together, parts of the same whole. In other words, we don't just get a loving pat on the back in the incarnation of Jesus. Not ashamed of these brothers and sisters. It's not just a pat on the back. It's, it's organically fastened, linked through the authentic humanity of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and he tells us that this is a body with a future. We looked at these a few weeks ago. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. You have come, this is us, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. There's all sorts of people, if you go back in time, who have left this earthly body. If I think flashback to old Cedarview on 925 Davis Drive, and I just see all sorts of faces, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, and they're gone. My dad's one of them, gone. All sorts of people have relatives and they're gone. And what this text says is, through the incarnate work of Christ, becoming truly man, being made perfect for our salvation, coming and taking our sinful humanity so he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he became one of us, took our sins in his body to the cross, ascends to heaven and become the founder of the church of the firstborn. And what that means is we gather here, some gather there, but it's, it's one body. It's one body still. The second text, we're going to wrap up now, are from Isaiah. Our writer quotes Isaiah 8:17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. This is the part he quotes. I will hope in him. Let me tell you what's happening in Isaiah chapter 8 and why the writer of Hebrews would bother to go all the way back and include it in a reference to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 8, here's the story. The prophet has just discovered the written oracles of God, the law. And in it you have proclaimed this message of deeper judgment for their idolatry, their immorality, and one day deliverance. 
So the prophet Isaiah takes this message to the king. The king doesn't want to hear it. The people have no interest in the oracles of God. And so, in Isaiah 8.16, the prophet Isaiah hides the writings away. Just puts them in a safe place. So that when the people start to see God doing the things he said he was going to do, the prophet will go, bring out the scroll, and say, See? Now, now do you want to listen? Aren't we like that? Now do you want to listen? Now do you want to see what God said? And so he puts them away. That's where this quote in Hebrews from Isaiah 8 comes in. Where he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. So, so the prophet is determined to keep trusting in God while in the middle of a culture of cynicism and rebellion and wickedness and unbelief. That's why the writer of Hebrews quotes that text. The writer of Hebrews takes the last part of that verse. And he applies it to the suffering of Jesus. Jesus kept trusting the Father. Jesus trusted through deep forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus kept trusting through being despised and rejected. Jesus kept trusting through the cry for the removal of the cup that wasn't answered in the garden. Jesus kept trusting through the desertion and the betrayal of his closest friends. And in the end, he was fully vindicated. That's the point. He's entered into the Father's reward. He has a name above all names. And our writer's point is that we are now in Christ. See, our writer is still unpacking Hebrews 2.11. He who sanctifies, it's Jesus, those who are sanctified all have one source. We're, we're together. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The path of Jesus is the one we follow. We trust Jesus. We trust Jesus through departed loved ones. We trust Jesus through miscarried babies. We trust Jesus through loss of jobs. We trust Jesus through unexplainable suffering. We trust Jesus through bad reports from doctors. We trust Jesus through gossiping and slandering church members. We trust Jesus through unanswered prayer. And, and the text says we wait in hope. We wait in hope. It's not unfounded hope. It is anchored in our risen and ascended Lord who kept waiting, who kept trusting, and he was fully rewarded, and we will be too. That's his point. The last quote comes from Isaiah 8.18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. That's the part that gets quoted in our Hebrews text. 
Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. That isn't quoted. From the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. It's one of those rare passages where the prophet Isaiah speaks of his two sons that his wife bore. I think it's the only place it's mentioned. And he says these children, Isaiah's children, were signs and portents. That's in the Isaiah text. They were signs and portents to God's rebellious people. So, Isaiah's two sons were the nucleus of a faithful remnant who would remain faithful to the Lord when all around them the culture was not. Notice the way the quotation from Isaiah starts. I and the children. And remember, our writer of Hebrews is applying these words to Christ and his sons and daughters. And and the part to consider is the shocking way the children of the Messiah are not discussed in different categories, which only seems appropriate, but are lumped together. I and the children. writer's point is this. We aren't to consider Christ and his redemptive work apart from our participation in the fruit of that work. So so when you study Christ's earthly life with all of its rejection and trial, and when you see his reward and his exaltation, you aren't just looking at his life, you're looking at your life in him. That's the scope of the new covenant. If you get it in your head that all we're talking about is just God forgiving in the sense of saying from a distance, I let you off the hook. I forgive you. Then then here's what's going to happen. If you think of the cross and you think of John 3.16... We're going to talk about this more next Sunday. And you think of salvation solely in terms of God letting you off the hook and saying, I forgive you. Then sooner or later, you're going to wonder, is, I, wonder if he's, I wonder if he's getting sick of forgiving me. Especially for the same thing over and over again. I wonder, I wonder if one of these days my apology isn't going to work anymore. If you just think of that as a distant forgiveness, all right, you're sorry, I forgive you. I know forgiveness is a part of it, but if that's how you conceive of it, there's not much assurance there that you're not going to run out of grace at some point. How many times do I forgive, Peter says? Seven? Seven times 70? With God, let's make the number bigger. 5,000? It's not going to get you to the end of 2017. But if you have if you have a God who has made the founder of our salvation perfect by having the incarnate Lord become fully one of us. 
he ascends back to the Father still as, Paul says, the man, Christ Jesus. The incarnation has never been undone. There is still the man, Christ Jesus, who intercedes. And my life is so webbed to his that just as he went through all those trials and difficulties and just as he was rewarded and is seated at the right hand of the Father, Paul says, we too are risen. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is, this is, this is not something sketchy. This is not something iffy. This is not God just saying, I'll let you off the hook again. This is one who, knowing all about your life and mine in every detail, in every detail, says, I'm not ashamed that these, those are my brothers and sisters. That is a bigger plan of salvation than just, okay, I'll let you off the hook. Brother. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Let's pray.